today with us is Adam Vidavsky. Adam is founder of Logos Education and Research whose mission is to empower individuals and organizations to become conscious communicators amid VUCA. Born in Poland and trained in London, England as an educator, linguist and thinker. Currently based in Malta, Adam is a researcher at the Consilience Project, a US-based charitable think tank where he investigates existential risks of language breakdown in the age of narrative warfare. In addition, Adam has worked as a translator for a number of sectors, including government, academia and tech education. When not working, you can find him training for a marathon or hiking in the wild. Adam, welcome. Hello, Spiros, how are you? I'm pretty fine. Pleased to be here with you and uh, looking forward for this uh, great uh, conversation and uh, the episode. So, Adam, uh, share with us a bit of your uh, background and uh, where were you before? How did you came up with the idea with uh, the philosophy in VUCA and uh, the linguistic thing and all that great stuff that we uh, previous time discussed uh, in private conversation. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, as with your previous guests, I, I, you know, um, I listened to your podcast yesterday and it was uh, kind of interesting to see that my reasons for getting into VUCA and coming across the term VUCA was similar. When, when the pandemic hit, you know, like we all had our set up lives and we had our projects and whatnot. And uh, suddenly everything got in the air and we had to rethink and reschedule. And uh, basically, I, I, I'm, my background is I work in education. I, I mostly um, worked up until that time. I worked in uh, schools and higher education, like um, mentoring young people, uh, helping people develop. So, so this personal development element and education element was there, I, I taught different subjects as part of that in capacity of, you know, like supporting um, individuals to thrive and achieve their goals. And that was mostly in the traditional education system. So at the time uh, in London, so I, I, I live in England, I'm Polish myself, I was born in Poland, but then I, uh, after leaving, you know, at, I was 23, I think I, I moved to the UK. And then after a few years, I qualified as teacher and ended up teaching um, you know, in London, in, in schools, as well as privately as a tutor. So that's my background, mostly with teenagers. But then also I ended up uh, basically working with young adults. And when the pandemic hit, I was like, OK, I don't want to stay here. And I was kind of both of my students where one of them was finishing a degree. So I was kind of waiting to change the place of residence anyway. So, so um, I was already planning to leave, I think, at the time, actually, um, to leave for Malta, uh, where I live now. <clears throat> but um, yeah, basically, yeah. So I had two clients and, and uh, two young clients. One of them was finishing a degree. The other one was uh, just got an offer um, at Oxford University. <clears throat> so I was like, I was, 
I felt like my mission in the UK was being accomplished, you know, at that point, at that point. And then the pandemic hit. It was like, whoa, I, I need to do something like, am I staying here for the lockdown or, you know, and that kind of, uh, I started to realize that the, the opportunities I had in London will not apply anymore because like obviously video reference uh, video conferencing wasn't yet a thing so i was like oh i need to kind of what can i do so i ended up teaching english you know which i which i had done before because i my main area is philosophy psychology um yeah like special needs uh, education but also a music as well i studied music before but uh it was an obvious choice to to keep my paying my bills. I got I got qualified as a as an English teacher and and started teaching that and teaching professionals. So I got in touch with professionals uh, like CEOs, uh, lawyers, doctors, you know, like adult population basically. And I realized that I kind of it gave me an insight into into the reality of business world within like during the pandemic and. During that time also, I started to retrain myself and like a lot of online courses emerged. So I, I've done some like a career, career refocus uh, type of course, you know, mm -hmm. from um, I think Monad University from like uh, and the guys from the Silicon Valley were talking about stuff and they mentioned VUCA there that the world will be increasingly VUCA and uh, it made a lot of sense, obviously, because that was just the onset of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, so I never really looked back at it uh, into the concept of VUCA until recently, actually. Um, so I never, I was never aware uh, about it being the military originally, the military term for the kind of situation where you have to think on your on your feet and and uh, you know kind of uh, re react effectively and think clearly. Um, and suddenly, yes, because also you know that interestingly. My background in music is I used to play in bands, like a death metal bands, you know, so all of that kind of aesthetic is like war and hate, like there's lots of negativity and anger. So so there's a lot of like rhetoric of warfare and, you know, lyrics There's a kind of fantasy stuff, you know, but but I realized that the world has kind of become, as it were, a battlefield of ideas, right? Mm -hmm. so pandemic has and with the technology involved has uh, opened up new ways of weaponizing uh, language, of weaponizing ideas, ideologies, and so on. And um, because I used to believe myself to be part of some wars as a teenager playing in bands, you know, I realized that in a, in a completely interconnected world, there is no way any war can be won anymore. <laughs> so, so in a way, there was a shift of perspective within me. I, I also, because of the many um, kind of media companies emerged and, and because of the pandemic, there were a lot of like long form talks and lectures and discussions. And I've come across a few individuals, uh, especially from the, um, from, the, from the group called Rebel Wisdom and like thinkers and people from universities and, and uh, independent thinkers from NGOs and so on. Yeah. And the way they presented their ideas were, was very refreshing. Like all of my philosophical knowledge, like my, um, you know, I used to study, uh, got an MA in philosophy and I really, I, I, I used to study these things as a kind of scholar, you know, but suddenly this merged with the reality of the, our lived reality and 
and the frameworks they were presenting were very practical and kind of rooted in our experience of day-to-day -day VUCA reality and and uh, like systems thinking, you know, strategic thinking, um, that this battlefield of ideas, of, of processes kind of um, needed a new way, new outlook, a new approach to uh, being effective, and not only as a professional, but as an individual. And, and that kind of let, had led me to, um, yeah, to kind of focus. Eventually, I started coming across people, uh, partners like yourself, um, where we ended up starting, you know, like creating workshops and, and, and exploring, like uh, educating people in how to uh, develop the new paradigm of leadership and um, managing, uh, managing everything really, beginning from the microcosmic level, yourself as an individual and growing out and scale uh, companies and nations and, and whatnot. And it all is kind of connected for me with the um, very concept of kind of new paradigm for humanity as such. As a humanist, as a social scientist, you know, I see it as, as a great opportunity to actually reconnect with like-minded individuals, because without this crisis, you know, there wouldn't be an opportunity to actually speak out and and try to be honest and courageous and uh, try to bring the best uh, from us into the world to see how we can how we can navigate. Yeah. So awesome. let's leave it. Awesome. Great realizations during this uh, awesome journey. So let's um, let's see. Um, let's jump to our first question. What work have you already done as a VUCA trainer? Um, most recently I've done, I've coupled up with a friend of mine, well, a friend, I'm, I'm someone I met online, we, we become kind of uh, partners and because um, he's a technologist and I'm a social scientist, we both through the context of VUCA and uh, kind of the attention to ethics and ethical um, awareness, um, we, we started delivering workshops in uh, is one of the um, third largest bank, I think, in Europe at the moment. So we've done one workshop, we're working on another one. And uh, before that, um, it was, I suppose, what I had been doing was kind of, was doing VUCA, but it wasn't explicit. I mean, I, I realized that the way I trained people and I mentored people was already like for the last five years or so was kind of, I was already sensing that this moment like pan, such as pandemic, you know, it, it, it had to happen at some point because I looked around myself like, this is not going to live for long, you know, like things were just not holding up. So I tried to kind of train uh, on individual level, my students um, and, and individuals I, I mentored, you know, in kind of trusting the mind, having control over their own emotions and um, being able to think critically and analyze information and, and stuff like that. So, so informally, I had done some, uh, let's say, uh, several years of training mm -hmm. in this capacity, but only un after the um, pandemic started, I actually realized that this is, uh, well, it's, a, it's an actual thing and it aligns with my method of seeing the world well and, and, and what is the best, most best efficient way of, of training people. Yeah. Okay. And why do you think uh, focusing on language is uh, critical for uh, for VUCA situations? Well, there are many uh, reasons. 
I think I I would I would uh, first thing that really there are two things really like first thing is in early days of the pandemic we saw a lot of I mean perhaps if you're not a linguist it's not so obvious but the ways in which language is shaped and the narratives of um, you know are being um, the, the official narratives or unofficial narratives um, are being shaped and developed during these kinds of critical times uh, present that, that presents a real showcase of what language can do and how language can be helpful and very unhelpful also. Okay. So I thought what well, the first thing I realized is that certain definitions started to be shift, shifting. And for example, definition of a pandemic or definition of what is normal and what is a new normal. And and how because language is you see is like the interface for conceptual thought for us. I, I'm not saying by, by all means we have our thinking, our cognition expands beyond language. Absolutely, Your language is only a tiny dimension within which we can um, you know conceptualize our thoughts. Mm -hmm. And yet, it it is most of uh, our attention in information technology. I mean in the age of information technologies as intense and proliferated as they are, mm -hmm. this takes most of our attention. So we take content all the time. We take words and stories all the time. And when we, when we, it's very easy to get led astray by certain use of language. So I got really fascinated by uh, studies about how language can be used, for example, to mislead as well as, you know, and, and misrepresent reality and used and can how a language can be used to um, to further certain agendas and not others. So um, beginning of that was really it was really eye opening when I um, watched for the first time a series of series of talks really series of lectures um, by Daniel Schmachtenberger called uh, the War on Sense Making. It, it it was an amazing. Uh, analysis of how narratives can be shaped something I already I knew on the conceptual kind of academic level but applying it to reality of our day-to-day -day experience of media and stories we hear from people and like conspiracy thinking and the anti-conspiracy all of that you know like all of that the, the scope of ecological uh, the the uh, information ecology as as Daniel calls it is broken down so because we are so interconnected uh, with with the technologies, with digital technologies, mm -hmm. um, the way we use language, because these technologies are exponential, you know, they they proliferate at uh, and magnify or amplify any message if the message has the capacity to 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 capture attention of of populations of individuals. Mm -hmm. So any message that is not necessarily useful but very sticky, mm -hmm. it can really change the, the consciousness and perception of, of individuals and populations. So that was very fascinating. And the uh, factoring in, you know, exponential technology into the issue of language and issue of and the issue of consciousness, human consciousness uh, mm -hmm. has captured me. And, and since then, I've been working on it as well as I try to train people in this when I do my mentoring in language. I also train, uh, I also like research this and really look into 
the possible risks and and uh, you know issues that may emerge out of this this situation where where we you know if we don't do anything with it then i think the ultimate the ultimate uh, implication is that the destruction of language because right now the 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 landscape the, the informational landscape is so so uh, broken down so fragmented mm -hmm. that um we have to really take care to articulate ourselves clearly um and also weaponizing language is another issue which i'm also guilty of but <laughs> yeah it's it's a big it's a big challenge for humanity now to actually um be able to uh use language mindfully i think with all the with all the technology involved okay i, I would love to uh, talk a bit more about the weaponizing of the language and uh let's start if uh, you agree from um um referring um some of the emergencies that you previously referred to so what are the emergencies that um, you have identified or you are understanding and how this uh, brings us to the uh um how you call it to the um, um the weaponizing of right yes yes so basically what does it mean like language is a tool we are tool makers we're humans we are tool makers we have we've got where we are by the virtue of being able to make tools and evolve and and build civilizations and so on but then any tool that is designed to harm becomes a weapon right mm -hmm. so a knife can be used for, for for preparing food or it can be used for violence and likewise language can be used to uh, communicate or it can be used to miscommunicate or subvert communication and when there's an agenda of any individual uh, or, or organization or state or anyone at all uh, to be pursued we are tempted, all of us, we are tempted to misrepresent reality through words to get what we want. Mm -hmm. And that used to kind of work on a local level, it seems, because, um, and it's, the, you know, it, it's not clear whether we always know when we weaponize language. Anything can be weaponized. And, um, but to give you an example, there was a study, uh, I always quote this, this, this case study, uh, Lera Boroditsky was talking about this. There was a TED talk as well. And uh, her department, they, they've done a study where they had two groups of people who are presented with uh, identical scenarios. There's a crisis in a town, there's a fictional town, and there's a lot of violence. Um, I think there's just a lot of violence happening. And the whole scenario was exactly the same, but the only, so the facts, the facts and statistics of the violence and, and everything, the data was the same. So statistical data was 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 equal on both sides. But the only thing they changed the the variable uh, the variable in um, in the experiment was how they addressed the violence. So in one case it was the virus, yeah. and in the in the other in the other case it was a beast or like a, I think it was a beast. So it was associated. In the mind, we have the same facts presented to, the, to, to people, but in, in one case, the fact is there's an association made in how, in how the narrative is presented with a beast, something dangerous and uh, predatory. And on the other hand, in, for, the, for the other group, 
the same fact is associated in imagination with a virus. So may, maybe, and then they asked people, how would they solve the problem? And the ones with, um, when, when there was a virus, as an example, you know, there was the association with virus, like, oh, when maybe we, we, need, we need help, we need better healthcare, we need to um, uh, more education about how to protect people against it, et cetera, et cetera. So it was more like a preventive attitude towards the problem. Whereas when there was a beast, there was this kind of characterization of the problem as a, as a predatory danger. So people were more likely to say, um, well, the, we, need, we need more because the crime was the actual problem. You know? so, so in, in one case, the virus like, oh, crime, we need to educate people and maybe uh, look uh, better social systems so they don't get violent and they, get, they don't commit crime. But on the other hand, where, when there was... Um, association with the beast people are like more penal more you know harsher harsher legal codes more police on the streets mm -hmm. and then the second stage of the experiment was they asked them why did they give that answer and they said oh because of the data see because the data says this and this and this because, and the data was exactly the same so so and we know that from other behavioral experiments for example ash experiment from 1955 where people we don't like to think that we got deceived by say weaponizing anything language or emotions or you know we don't like to because it feels like we don't want we like to think that we have control over mm -hmm. our life and i think it's part of this VUCA kind of training that in a way that the big hurdle that your clients your, your, your uh, guests also mentioned uh, that is like to, you have to kind of explain people that they have been a bit fooled maybe or that we are not as invincible as we like to believe to be, because that's just evolutionary software of ours, right? So yeah, the, 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 how to answer your question is um, this example illustrates very well how language very subtly can present the same facts, but there's an emotional valence attached to the fact, uh -huh. which then can have very significant implications in the way people think and ultimately act on that information. Yeah, so um, yeah, there are other examples, but this one is very, very lucid, I find. Uh, by the way, um, the um, video and the, and the paper will be uh, also down to the comments of, uh, of the video, or if you are listening to us on Spotify, you will find it to the comments. Uh, thank you uh, for, uh, for the insights that you brought until now. Adam, and um, I have another question that is, I, I, I'm aware that uh, you are um, involved with the Consilience project. So why have you joined this, uh, this one? Oh, this, um, well, it, 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 it's associated with, um, with this kind of breakthrough. When I, <clears throat> Consilience project is a, is a charitable think tank that um, looks at existential risks that we're facing now as, as a species, as humanity, because of the, the planetary boundaries um, that now really make, make uh, the way in which we used to do things invalidates a lot of these ways. And, and that, that's linked to VUCA, right? So, and weaponizing uh, language and, and, and thinking is, um, is one of the examples of that. So, Basically, it was part of the. Um, I, I come across the, the founder of this uh, project uh, on 
Rebel Wisdom, which is um, this platform where the war on sense making was had. And, and then I, I, I took a course in Sense Making 101, uh, where he was one of the faculty members and, and there were other scholars there involved. And basically, so, so I, I joined to as um, because it, it's, it's something I feel really passionate about. So I thought uh, I'd like to contribute and um, do some work um, to help to help the work yep. to help with the work of the project. So so yeah, that that's the, um, something I would really um, I look forward to like exploring more and and um, working. I'm currently working on um, algorithmic conditioning of uh, human cognition. So how how these digital networks and digital platforms how they actually affect the quality of our sense making and our and our thinking and what might be the implications of that for like entire populations. It's obviously is a completely speculative area, but the idea uh, of, of, of the Consilience project is that um, we aggregate as many po points of view, as many uh, perspectives okay. of as many individuals as possible, and then uh, we try to see where the disagreement, when they may disagree, and where they are accurate, and and uh, win out the, uh, you know, as it, like rectify the inaccuracies and um, doing it organically, you know, as like biological. So we try to uh, keep it uh, keep it uh, as organic as biological uh, without using AI in, mm -hmm. in the process because there's a big uh, focus on the human values, which now it's becoming a questionable and, and kind of debatable even um, what that means to have to, to be human and, and to have human values. So so I think um, the spirit of, of kind of, you know, being a team human, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's part of the values of the project and I'm proud to be part of it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so Adam, as you have already worked with teenagers, but you uh, nowadays you are also working with um, C-suite professionals, let's say. Uh, mm -hmm. There is um, a, a very common debate uh, that uh, people are trying to understand if the difficulties on the language are the same in, in teenagers and in um, uh, professionals. Do they have the same difficulties on how to properly use the, the words and how to avoid weaponizing the, the language? Well, you know what? I would say, I would say, um, like one of your guests before, that it's not so much about the technical capacity, although it is to articulate yourself mm -hmm. um, reasonably. You need to learn that as a technical skill. But what it really is is um, is the intention behind the words, really, isn't it? And and that's independently of of age. I would say, you know. Um, when you speak to professionals, they had to already master the communication skills to some extent to 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 get where they are. Mm -hmm. And I think, yes, there's there's a crisis, and I don't work so much with teenagers anymore. Um, but yeah, I I find perhaps some of the technologies like um, you know like Grammarly and Spellcheck and my colleagues colleague scholars from here from Malta that there's one colleague who uh, works in uh, he researches uh, technology in education as well and he's very concerned that the suggestions for 
like policy in education and uh, involves so many tools that make learning easier that they actually outsource cognitive capacities to technological tools which makes us you know like makes you stop learning because learning happens when it's not comfortable when it's when you have to do the work so that's the challenge but i wouldn't be able to distinguish actually um to answer your question between you know whether which which demographic adults or teenagers are more capable but i think there's a there's a growing awareness of um needing to be more mindful of of language and that how lang how powerful language is uh, especially because you know because of the the platforms that we have these days uh, to make it to make things viral um yeah we don't want to add to the noise i suppose we want to be as clear as possible to to not break 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 the system further yeah what is the importance of uh quality questions quality questions yeah qualitative questions what is the importance in order to communicate uh using questions ah well uh in my practice a quality well I think the best way. What, what do you mean? Like when in, in terms of instruction or just just dialogue or? Uh, yeah, mainly a dialogue because um, you know everything starts with a debate and starts with a dialogue. On the instructing part, um, okay, it is useful. It is a practice, a teaching, a, a teaching method. But according to the everyday life, or either it is the, um, the the normal life or the business life or the working life, um, how how does communicating uh, with questions uh, works or helps as uh, um, yeah, to, to go further with the communication, with the topic, with the things that they are discussed. Uh -huh. Are questions enablers? Uh, I mean, this is the question. Mm. Yeah, I think I think the good point is, I th what comes to my mind now, you're talking about questions, is the Socratic questioning. You know, the classic, classic method we know from ancient Greece, Mm -hmm. um where instead of telling people what it, we want them to think or see or we actually we will be will become this midwife and we try to uh, perhaps ask be curious the curious the fostering curiosity first of all so we ask questions to to find out and we are curious to learn and we are curious to know where we might be wrong first of all so we humble enough to realize that we don't know everything and we can learn everything from anyone even um you know from someone with completely especially with someone from different expertise or even no formal expertise you know like someone who has simply has different experience of life can teach us a lot so i think uh, questions are very useful um or when we even explain things or we try to instruct people it's it's good to ask questions that lets them discover something um and that is that a kind of socratic method where 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 instead of telling people we just make them realize or make them uh, discover something that they already know or but they don't but they might not realize that what about your um the curiosity of uh, the people what uh, what is happening according to your experience are people curious enough or they need to be more well it seems to be that we are at the point in history where curiosity is 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 uh is not really um 
safe for a lot of people. <laughs> because curiosity means asking uh, courageous questions, right? And when we ask questions, people get cancelled. This whole cancel culture is has really grown, um, I think, out of control. And and a lot of like, I always say that when people I meet a client for the first time and I ask a straight question and I always say that the main thing is like we're being respectful, but we're being open and authentic and we speak our mind because otherwise we can't think, you know. Um, so we must be able to think, first of all, and then that means we have to must exercise our language in, in, on, in an honest way. So I think people are really right now um, swayed towards not questioning because it's been demonstrated to be dangerous in public discourse and uh, what i see where i see my mission to be is enabling courage and enabling speaking out and uh, you know being authentic in what we think while but we can only do that if, if we understand that if we have kind of good hygiene of language and we and not only on language language is just a tool but our emotional state, you know, emotional self-regulation, which goes um, back to VUCA and um, emotional literacy, where, where we are aware of our triggers and we can we can identify this gap between the response and and trigger and you know um, and neutralize it. I think this is kind of the work which has to be done before even any linguistic work, mm -hmm. but there's a very little awareness. Uh, it seems to be a little, there seems to be a little awareness of that kind of work because it's, like I said, it's qualitative, uh, it's a kind of qualitative area, what we're doing, VUCA, and, and what the managers and directors need is, is the quantitative uh, evidence as a starting point for doing any of, of that kind of training, right? So, I go back to your question. Um, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> All right. You you already answered the the question through the uh, process of uh, of thought. You thank you. Thank you. So, uh, what are the future plans? Well, the future plans is to um, yeah to build alliances and meet more individuals like yourself and and explore you know help help companies help individuals to navigate to uh, be articulate uh, to think for themselves and um, yeah just just you know, be a sovereign human being with a sense of responsibility, but also a sense of agency um, in the world. Yeah, awesome. which, uh, both of which are necessary. Awesome. And where, where uh, our listeners can find you? How can they come in contact with you? Uh, what is out there to come in and uh, see what you are doing? Uh, I'm pretty active on, on LinkedIn. It seems to be my, my uh, platform of, of choice. Um, I try to avoid social media, but LinkedIn is is the place I, I spend time um, quite a bit. Uh, website is is right now under um, revision, so I will follow. Um, I will forward the address later on when it's when it's completed. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think I think LinkedIn is the best place to to, to look for me. Awesome, Adam. Thank you very very much for this uh, great conversation we had. Thank you for the great insights that you shared with us. Ladies and gentlemen, contacts of uh, Adam down to the comments, uh, to the comments, please don't forget to hit the link to see the video that Adam uh, talked to us about. Adam, thank you very, very much for being here and uh, supporting this uh, 
new Vocal Leadership podcast. Looking forward to our next ones. It's a great pleasure, Spiros. Thank you very much for having me. See you Bye. Again. Cheers. Bye.